Our Father and our God, we pause for prayer to thank you for your mercy to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have reminded, been reminded this morning as we have sang uh, to you and in the hearing of each other that uh, you are a gracious God and Father and love us and have demonstrated your love to us, lavished your love upon us uh, in through, the, through Christ Jesus and have called us the children of God. We praise you and we thank you. Lord, it has been a privilege to honor you and to worship you and to lift up our voices. And now we ask that you would open up your word to us and cause us to understand the great things there are uh, contained therein about our great God and Savior. And we thank you, Father, that we have your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And Lord, I pray this, this morning that in the hearing of your word and in the study of your word, you would move our hearts to respond uh, with fullness of, of thanksgiving and that we would love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. You are truly a great and a good God, and we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the last several weeks, we have been uh, studying uh, the matter of discipleship and disciple-making. In particular, we've been concentrating on what disciples do. Uh, for the next several weeks, we're going to be discussing what disciples believe. It's critical that we know uh, our distinctives and how we are distinguished from the other religions of the world. And um, so our challenge this morning is perhaps... Uh, the most mind-boggling of all of our beliefs, and that is that our God uh, exists in three persons. Our one God exists in three persons, which is called the doctrine of the Trinity. We've just been singing about it this morning, just, just before. And uh, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we pray in this kind of language. We uh, had in the early service a baptism and we baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But this great mystery of the threeness of our God is a Christian distinctive. And um, a God who exists in community with himself uh, actually gives logical form to how the human community is shaped, in particular disciples, that God is shaping. He himself lives in community and brings us into his community, and we live in community as well. Um, and so we are called, uh, as Christians, uh, uh, Trinitarian monotheists, if you want to use the, the terminology. Uh, we don't believe there are three gods, nor do we believe that it's one god in three uh, modes, but rather one God existing in three distinct persons. Uh, and if you hope to get your mind wrapped around this today in fullness, I'm going to disappoint you right up front because why would we expect with finite human minds to, to be able to comprehend the amazing glory of God and who he is in his fullness. But we are called to live according to his truth. He declares to us certain things about himself. He has not hidden these things from us. He has revealed who he is to us, but it's not possible for us necessarily to get our minds wrapped around him. But we live by faith, not by sight, not by full intellectual understanding. Uh, we live trapped in the dimension that is in time and space. God lives outside of time and space. He, it is impossible for human beings created by Almighty God to fully comprehend all of the intricacies of who God is and what He's like. If we could, then we would be God, and we are not. We are the creature. We are dependent upon the Creator. But I am going to do the very best that I can today to show you from God's Word that the doctrine of the Trinity is truth. And I trust my assignment today is that you would believe the truth and that it would shape the way you live and the way you think because that's what doctrine is about. We study doctrine so that we will know what the truth is 
and that we will live out the truth. It, it has implications in our lives. Now, as monotheists, believing in one God, we are not unique in the world. There are three other religions that are mono, or three, two other religions that are monotheistic. Judaism is monotheistic, Islam is monotheistic, and Christianity is monotheistic. But we are the only Trinitarian belief within the monotheist group. And I'm going to make a bold statement this morning that I guess you would expect me to make in a Christian church, but I'm going to make this statement anyway, and that, that, that is that Christianity claims to be the one true religion. Now, I know that we're not unique in making that claim, but I can tell you that we claim as Christians to believe that Christianity is the one true religion fundamentally on the basis of our Trinitarian belief. And we, I will show you that. In fact, we, we claim to be the one true religion, and there is no space in this world of, uh, of beliefs in terms of, of a, a, a creation under God whereby there's room for other religions that are, are parallel or equivalent or okay or acceptable. There is not. Christianity is the one true religion because Jesus claims to be the one true religion. We are going to find out in the scriptures that Jesus claims to be Almighty God, the second person of the Trinity. He also claims that he is the way, the truth, uh, the, 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 yeah, he, he is the, the way, the truth, and, and the life. And no man comes to the Father God but through him. If Jesus makes the claim to be very God, then God is actually making the claim that there is no access to God but through God. So, the reason the claim is exclusive that Christianity is a true religion is to ignore that Jesus is God, is to declare that his statement was a lie, and therefore God lies, and therefore there is no religion. So bottom line, for me, if your mind can get wrapped around this logic, and believe me, it's, it's not going to be this, this, this the whole way, but, but um, for me, if Christianity, if, there's no, if Christianity is proven to be untrue, I'm an atheist. There's no, there's no alternative religion. There is only Christianity or there is no God in atheism. That's, that's fundamentally what I believe logically and according to the scriptures, you the conclusion you have to come to. Why do I say all of that? Because it is important for us as believers to understand the motivation of the gospel. Unless you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you cannot come to the Father God. And therefore, you are lost for all eternity. There are no other religious alternatives that will enable you to somehow come to God. It's not possible. God has made an exclusive claim about himself. He says he is the only way to himself. So, as uh, introduction... Uh, to a very, very complex subject, to confirm the Trinity as doctrinal truth, two things must be demonstrated in Scripture. And my goal is to demonstrate those two to you, and they are this. The Scriptures must declare that there is one God, and secondly, the scriptures must declare that all three persons of the Trinity are God. So for the Trinity to be true, you need to hold me to this this morning. I've got to show you in the scriptures that the scriptures declare there's one true God and that the, that, that the scriptures declare that each person of the Trinity is God. All right? So that's our first assignment. And then I want to take you to after that, I want to show you the essential identities of the Trinity, the triune God. Okay? So fasten your seatbelts, get out your water-cooled pens, and let's go. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. By the way, we're going to do lots of scripture uh, searching, lots of sword drills, if you got electronic or you got pages or whatever, and I, I've decided not to give myself an advantage by marking out my Bible and the text that I'm going to like I often do, so that I have to turn to the text too, but I'm not waiting for you, all right? 
I'm going, I'm there, I'm going, because I can't wait for you. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Now, keep in mind that Israel has been rescued from Egypt. They have been taken out of a polytheistic religious community. The Egyptians believed in many gods. So, as Israel is being rescued now out of Egypt, the living God makes some declarations about truth because they've come out of a system that has surely infected them to some degree. And we call this, in verse 4, the Shema. In fact, good Jews say this every single day. The Shema is simply a Hebrew word which means hear or listen. God is basically shouting from heaven, Shema! And then he says, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Remember I said my assignment was to show you that the scriptures tell us that our God is one? Here we have it. There is one God. O Israel, and it's emphasized by, you, by say, stating the Lord twice. The Lord our God, by the way, in case you don't know who I'm talking about, the Lord, that one, the one from heaven, the only one is one. And that's the declaration that he makes. Hear, O Israel, one supreme being over you. And by the way, I proved myself to you. We were, you were on Egyptians' home field. They had home field advantage with all of their gods. And they called on them and they summoned them. And I rescued you out of Egypt by my mighty hand, declaring that I am the supreme God of the universe. What I state will happen. What I want will happen. And um, God is unwilling to entertain any rivals because he is the one God. Claims of rivals offend his perfection. He has stated that he is the one God, therefore to present other gods offends his perfection. And that's why in the uh, Ten Commandments, the First Commandments, you have there, don't make any other gods. Don't have no other gods before me and, <clears throat> and don't even think of making gods with your own hands. It's unthinkable that the creation would try and make the creator in the image of creation. It's a complete offense to God. It's, it's not possible. And, and in, in order to, uh, to understand the nature of God, we have to understand that he rescues his people out of those belief systems. He rescued Israel, the people of God of the Old Testament. He re rescued them out of slavery. He rescued the church out of slavery to sinfulness and brought us into his community to join his community. What's his community? The triune God to bring us into his community. There is no other God. He proved it. So don't identify uh, God with any created image. Creating God in the image of his creation makes him a lesser God than he truly is. Now, you'll notice here that you have this indicative statement whereby there's a declaration made. This is a classic uh, feature in the scriptures of indicative then imperative. The declaration of who God is, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, therefore love him. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and uh, with all of your soul and with all of your strength. This is why we study doctrine. This is why we study God. This is why God wants us to know him and know who he is. There's a response, a logical response to this. To know who your God is. To know how spectacular and supreme he is is to love him with all of our heart. And he, and he says here that, that 
you, you love me, and what you ought to do is, is every day you, you need to think about me when you're moving, when you're sitting, when you're, when you're walking, when you're talking, when you're, when you're interacting with your little kids. Talk to them about me. Tell them who I am. Notice me everywhere. Tell them about me. And, and, and ingrain it in your hearts as you think all the time. In everything that you do, think about me and love me with all of your strength. Every fabric of your life. An urgency to love me. Because to know me is to love me. We know those who know their God love him. You can't help but love him. And he urges us, and, and then down at the end of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, he puts forth the case that, that this is critical to your life be, so that, in verse 24, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive. How important is it that we know our God and we love our God with all of our hearts? The, that is the way to really live. And then he says in you know, I just took you out of an Egyptian's home, plate, uh, home field advantage. I'm taking you into Canaan now in their home field advantage. And they got all a bunch of gods as well. He says, I, I've, I've got to... You're, you're going into a culture with comp competing associations, competing values, competing voices, competing vocations, just like us. And that's why you have to practice loving me with every fiber of your life. And know who I am so you're not thrown off by all of the other competing ideas. Look at Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations. They're there, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Nations larger and stronger than you. They're there imposing their culture on you. You need to know who I am. To be kingdom, to be a kingdom and priests coming into the land where you are or into the vocation where you are or the neighborhood where you are and display the glories of God by how much you love him. That you might show God as the true life-giving God. Look what the Lord has done for me. I promised you that I'd show you that there's one God portrayed in the scriptures, but I want to show you that all three persons are called God in the scriptures. So join me at uh, 1 Corinthians. Meet me there. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. As soon as you get there, put your Bible up in the air. No, it's not a sword drill. I'm just kidding. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I told you I wouldn't wait. Verse 4. Through verse 6, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, Paul is writing, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one, the New Testament confirming the Old Testament truth, for even if there are so-called gods, in other words, yes, there are people worshiping things that they call gods, we're acknowledging that. Whether, in whether they claim they're in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords in people's minds, yet for us, distinction of truth held by Christians, yet for us there is but one God, the Father. See, the Father called God here, from whom all things came, for whom we live, there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. One God, called Father. By the way, Jesus in Matthew 23, 9, uh, told us, call no man on earth Father. And some of you have been confused over the years about that. Am I allowed to call my earthly dad Father? The answer is, <laughs> you're timid. The answer is Yes. This was not talking about our earthly dads, our biological dads. This was talking about rank in the Christian community. Do not place anyone in a position whereby they outrank you 
by calling them father as if there's some intermediary between God and man. I don't have to name the denomination that does that. It's a complete violation of Jesus' teaching. I'm not your father. I'm a fellow sojourner in this marvelous journey called faith in Jesus. That's it. So that's what Jesus was getting at. No lofty position. We're bro- no brother over brother thing. We are brothers and sisters, and we have a father in heaven. And we are children of God. How about the son being called? How about we go to Hebrews chapter 1? Hebrews chapter 1, back near the back of your Bible. Pages flipping. I'm not hearing pages. Okay, I'm hearing pages. Hebrews chapter 1, don't be just staring at me, I want you to see this in the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, but about the son he says, who are we talking about? The son of God, all right, it's not, it's, it's easy, but about the son he says, who's he? God, your throne, O God. He's talking about Jesus now, calling him God. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, who's he talking about? Still talking about the Son. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. The Son is called God. That's why in John 8, when Jesus was standing before the Pharisees and said, Before Abraham was, I am, they freaked out because he was declaring himself to be Yahweh, Jehovah God. In fact, they knew full well what he was, the claim he was making. How about the Holy Spirit? Let's go to Acts. Acts chapter 5. You know that story? Ananias and Sapphira. They uh, sold themselves a house, some property. Didn't give it to the church. Moral of the story, when you sell real estate, you got to give the money to the church. (laughs) No, that's not the story. If I were on TV, I would say it was. But no, it's not the story. Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira, I got to get her name right, Sapphira, I'm saying it like a Texan, Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property and acted like they gave all of the money to the church. That was the problem. It was their money, they didn't have to give any of it to the church, but they gave it, they, they claimed they gave it to the church so that they could be patted on the back by all the people at church. Oh, aren't you spectacular? You know, you're so generous. You love God so much and all of that. Well, we know how that turned out. Uh, with uh, his wife's full knowledge, uh, Ananias kept back money for himself, uh, but brought the rest to put to the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart and that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, you could have done anything you wanted with it. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. So in the same conversation, he says here, didn't you realize you were lying to the Holy Spirit? Didn't you realize you were lying, in fact, to God? Because God is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. Now, by the way, throughout the scriptures, all three persons 
uh, uh, of the Trinity regularly appear in the same particular story. For instance, in Luke chapter 1, we have the account of the angel uh, interacting with Mary. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel answers, Mary, Mary says to, to the angel, like, how can I, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answers, now watch here, all three uh, members of, uh, persons of the, of, of the Godhead are mentioned. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High, the Father, will overshadow you, so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And people say the Trinity's not in the Bible. Trinity's all over the Bible. You don't have to look very hard to find the Trinity. It's, it's demonstrated doctrinally everywhere. So you have the three right there. Look over a couple of pages to Luke chapter 3 in the, um, in the uh, description of, of Jesus' baptism. This morning we had a wonderful testimony from uh, one of our choir members who was baptized this morning. To, and, and she shared how, how her Savior had been baptized in the, in the Jordan. And she was wanting to identify with her Savior and, and what he did. It was a beautiful testimony. Well, this is what's going on here is uh, in verse 21 of Luke 3. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Uh, and, and who is Jesus? Son of God. As he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and the voice came from heaven, who's that? The Father, you are my Son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. So you have the three members, the three persons of the Godhead, of the Trinity, responding in this particular incident. In John 14, 16, we won't look there, but the Son asked the Father to send another counselor, another comforter, the, the Trinity appears in that statement. In Romans 8, 9 through 11, we won't look there this morning, but you've got the, the Spirit mentioned, you've got the Spirit of God mentioned, you've got the Spirit of Christ mentioned, all claiming to indwell the believer. I don't know where it came from, but uh, sometime ancient, I, I looked it up, I couldn't find out the exact... Um, uh, creation of the, the triangle, the Christian triangle that shows the Trinity, but, but I have a graphic for you this morning, and, and I want to point out to you that uh, we're going to have a pop quiz next Sunday. You need to memorize this and know what this is all about, because this is an important theology that teaches us the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son. You got that? All right, you guys are doing great. We can keep going. How, how's the water in your air, uh, water-cooled pens? Fine? All right, good. So there you have the, that the Bible teaches us that there is one God and all three persons are called God. So that makes those people who are sub-cults within Christianity... Not Christian. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christian. Mormons are not Christian. Unitarians are not Christian. Unless you call the Father God, and unless you call the Son God, and unless you call the Holy Spirit God, you are not Christian. Okay? All right. So what's the essential then? I want to do the second section this morning I want to look at is the essential. You know, the task was... In this whole series of discipleship, you have one sermon on God. Go. And I mean, this is like, really? So I'm going to do the best I can to describe to you the essential identity of the Godhood. In other words, what is the essential identity of the Father? What is the essential identity of the Son? What is the essential identity of the Holy Spirit? You may disagree with me if you want because I could be wrong. But I'm going to try to give you the best I can on what, what is the core. Because keep in mind that in the Godhead, every, everything about the, every uh, characteristic, the nature of the Godhood, the identities within the Godhead are shared equally. So that it's the roles that are different. So I want to sort of parse out the, the three different uh, roles that the, the Godhead plays in our lives. And, the, and I'm going to use Paul's outline 
in Second Corinthians, right at the end, Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. It's a fantastic verse, and I wish Paul had have made it more uh, convenient for my sermon. Uh, if I had got to him, I would have said, Paul, look, if I could change one word here, I would. But clearly the Holy Spirit wanted it this way. But I'm going to use my outline and I'm going to show you what I, what I believe here is happening. And uh, hopefully you'll agree with me. Paul says, it's a beautiful conclusion to what he says to the Corinthians. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I believe that Paul has encapsulated in this verse the essential identities of the Godhead. And um, if he had have said the love of the Father, it would have made my outline a lot better. But I'm going to use my outline anyway. I'm going to explain to you why I think Paul didn't say Father here, why he said the love of God. Because clearly Paul is making a Trinitarian statement here. He's already talked about Jesus. He talks about the Holy Spirit. I'm convinced when he says the love of God, he's talking about the Father. And the reason he doesn't, in my mind, use the word Father there, because he could have. The reason that I believe he didn't use the word Father there is because he wanted to be certain to not remove the love of God from the core essential identity of Jesus or the core essential identity of the Holy Spirit. He wanted to say the Godhead loves you. And so it was understood that he's talking about the Trinity here, but he did not want to um, exclude from the description of love from either of the other two, the Son or the Holy Spirit. That's my take on this. And so I'm, gonna, I'm going to choose to use his outline here, and I'm going to say that what God is doing as Father is loving us. The love of the Father is the essential identity of our Father God. By the way, the word Father for God is used only 15 times in the Old Testament. And it always refers to the Father of Israel. The Father of the people of God. But it's not a common use in the Old Testament. It wasn't until the New Testament that the word Father took... Uh, very colorful life. And there's a reason for that. In, um, in the Gospels, in the four Gospels alone, you will see the word Father in reference to God 165 times, just in the Gospels. you got 15 times in the whole Old Testament. You have 165 times in the New Testament. The reason is because the Son of God, Jesus, loved that reference to the Father God. And he used it regularly. And the reason he used it regularly is because he wanted to teach us about the familial relationship that we have with God. In particular, because Jesus was laying down his life that we might be invited into the family of God. Jesus was basically saying, look, at, it's costing me a lot for this. And you better use this term because he is your father. I want you to know that God is Father only to those who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. The rest of the world does not have a father relationship with the living God. He is not Father by creation. He is Father by new creation to us. It is a family word. It's a, it's a wonderful, awesome word. When we think about the living, great God, He invites us into His family. And it's a highly expressive word. We have brought it, been brought into the family by adoption through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Christ says, you have been made children of the living God, my Father in heaven. And he is now your Father. He is my Father uh, by nature, but he is your Father by adoption into this marvelous relationship. The... the the, the description that John uses, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's, by the way, not a motivation statement for God. It's not that God so loved the world he sent his son. It's, it's a manner statement that this is how God loved the world. This is how God showed his love to the world. 
that he sent his one and only son. That's why John later in 1 John 3, 1 says, how great is the love of the Father that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. This is a, a familial statement. You've been brought into the family of the Godhead. This is the essential identity of God, the Father, that from the beginning we learn that God is love. The whole Godhead, of course, is love because the Godhead is God. But the Father, the identity and role of the Father is to demonstrate that love to us and to show us that love, the expression of that love, perfectly demonstrated, by the way, in the triune God, which lived in perfect harmony. And that community, that perfect community of the Godhead in, in uh, the description of perfect, pure love uh, had to expand because that's what love does. Love becomes fruitful. And it's the whole impetus for discipleship, the whole impetus for the Great Commission. The same God who said, let, uh, let man be made, who create, let us make man in our own image, was out of the nature of the love of God. Not because he needed us, but rather because the fact of God's love is so expansive and so expressive that he wanted to love more and express that love. And that's what was the, the, the roots of creation and the cause of new creation and the impetus for discipleship. We who understand the love of the Father are motivated and moved to reach more people to bring into his amazing family to be the priests and kingdom and priests that demonstrate the life-giving truth of God. That's just a natural outflow of love. And the, that fruit is born from the love of the community of the Godhead. And so um, the father identity is the impetus for discipleship. Go make disciples. The father chooses to love the unlovable, you and I, and make us his children and then capacitate us to love him back with his love that he's given to us with all that we have and are. That's the Father. How about the Son? Colossians chapter 1. Look with me there. Colossians chapter 1. Perhaps the greatest section of Christ Christology in all of the Bible which teaches us who Jesus is. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and uh, through to verse 23. He is, speaking of the Son of God, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Let me pause there and make the point that Jesus was not born as in a firstborn child in your family. Firstborn, like firstborn fruits and all of that means emphasis on superiority, emphasis on priority, emphasis on him rightfully receiving the inheritance of his father, which the firstborn son receives. This is, this is about title. This is about description. When we talk about the only begotten son, we're talking about the unique one of a kind Begotten is the stress on his humanity, but not on his divinity. He's not, he was the eternal son of God. As the son, he is called the son to identify with humanity, to be, uh, to be brothers, to earn our adoption, to help us understand the nature of the family of God. The son of God by divine nature. And so we read here, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth and Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. What God is doing in his son is demonstrating the grace of the Father 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's grace to us based upon his love, granted to us by redemption through what Jesus Christ has done for us. The grace of God, not that we deserve salvation, but that Christ came to die that we might have salvation because of the love of God, not because of anything that was good in us. And so the son was commissioned to take on this role of demonstrating the amazing grace of God in this fatherhood, eternal sonship relationship within the Godhead. And this is, by the way, one of the cases where father-son descriptions here on earth are not somehow some illustration of who God is, but rather the fatherhood and the sonship of God are the original, are the prototype. And father-son relationships here are not, uh, not formed because of the illustration that we might understand that, but rather the fatherhood and sonship predate and pre-prioritize how we are to live. That's why in, in when Jesus was standing before the Pharisees and claiming to be the son of God, they accused him of blasphemy. Because in the ancient Near East culture, the firstborn son, the adult son, was afforded equal treatment as the father. This was an outlandish statement that Jesus made in his culture to be the son of God. The son uh, is the, pers the person of God had assigned to redeem sinful man by his grace. Galatians 4.4. 4. His mission was to bring grace and truth. John 1.17. Jesus' mission was to reveal the invisible God. John 1.18. The Son of God came to create, or, or created, and to make the new creation. Colossians 1.16 and 20. In John 1.38, uh, John 1.38, uh, 1 John 3.8, uh, he came to destroy the works of the devil. And so you have this amazing reality. I mean, we could go on and on. I mean, how could we ever even think of exhausting the, the essential identity of the Son of God? But he came to establish for us that our God doesn't mean to harm us. He means to love us. And by grace, he has given to us his beloved Son who would die for us. And by believing in him, we might have eternal life and be brought into the family of God and lavished by love called the children of God. We get to call God our Father because of Jesus' incredible sacrifice for us. Well, the third person of the Trinity, what God is doing in the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul here says... Um, in his description, that it is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So we have the lavish love of the Father. We have the gracious, redeeming grace of the Son, the work of Christ. And that, those two things, the love of the Father and the redeeming work of Christ, is not enough to make us right. I was waiting for a gasp. Because we need the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to do for us what we can't do for ourselves in salvation and in sanctification. This perfect cooperative of the essential identities of the Godhead, essential identity of the Godhead, Father love, grace of the redeeming, the Son who redeemed us. And now the indwelling, powerful presence of God, the fellowship of God that moves into our lives to change us and to continue to change us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we have there a description that, And you also were included in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, sets up his holy presence and power within our bodies. That's his essential identity in our lives. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 13... 
we have this critically important text that tells us what has happened at salvation. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. At salvation, all believers, one time only, receive the Holy Spirit, his indwelling presence. And it is not required that it is a manifestation of some experiential reality. We, it is 100% the work of God. It is not something we engender ourselves through experience, but rather that God himself at salvation grants us the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. One baptism. The baptism in water is the expression of that salvation event that took place. But at salvation, every believer is baptized into the body of Christ, and we are therefore connected by way of true family to all of the Christians in all of the world. In the body of Christ. We are connected by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's why we fellowship together. That's why you go someplace and you meet Christians and you have fellowship with them. The reason you would have fellowship with them is because the same God that indwells you is indwelling them. That's the common reality. And the Holy Spirit is not a force. He's not a power, but a person. You can't grieve a force or a power, but you can grieve the Holy Spirit. So... We have here the fellowship of God, the God who moves into us. Is when Jesus was going to be ascended into heaven, he said, I'm going to send you another comforter called the paraclete, the one who comes alongside of you, the one who will be in you, he says. And he is the agent of revelation. He leads us into truth. He enables us to understand the things of God. In Romans chapter 8, 2 to 8, it talks there about him setting us free from our slavery to our sinful nature. In Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, it talks about giving spiritual life to our dying bodies. Our physical bodies are dying because of sin, but our spirit is being renewed day by day by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad if, when you're getting old that, that you know that, that, that the Spirit of God is renewing your, your heart and renewing your soul every day? We are just as much or more alive than ever while our body is dying in preparation, guarantee of what is to come. And so we have this relationship. And in Romans 8, 12 to 14, he empowers us to put sin to death, not by willpower, but by spirit power. That's why you have to have the indwelling work of the Spirit of God, not only for salvation, but for sanctification. You're moved and empowered by God to say yes to Jesus. In Romans 8, uh, verses 15 to 16, the Holy Spirit confirms that we really belong to Jesus. He moves us to, to say, Abba, Father. Abba, Father in Hebrew. Uh, Pater, Father in Greek. Father, Father in English. He enables us to say though, that word, to, to, to say it with conviction that we know he's our heavenly father. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us, confirming that we belong to the family of God. In, in Romans 8, 26 to 27, he's the agent of our prayers. When we uh, are so deeply wounded and all hope has been crushed and we don't even know what to say, because we're profoundly perplexed by what's happening in life, the Holy Spirit takes your groan and my groan and reconfigures them into the language that the Heavenly Father receives and welcomes and that we have our answer from God even when we don't know what to ask Him or what to say because we're so devastated. This is the fellowship work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives, gives us gifts to enable us to accomplish great things for God that we could never accomplish in our own human strength. 
And he causes the fruit of the Spirit to pop out of our lives, Galatians, 2, or Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And on and on we could go about the Holy Spirit. We, we could never exhaust any of these things about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It overwhelms us, but it, it moves us to, glor- to glorious worship of our great God, or should. And so... Um, The Father is lovingly multiplying his family. The Son is graciously redeeming people and bringing them into the family of God. And the Holy Spirit is powerfully indwelling those who belong. And that's how God shapes disciples. Through the love of the Father the redeeming work of the Son, and the powerful indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, we are really brought to a silent moment of realization that you are so, so awesome. That we, we, we do what we can to give description, but Lord, thank you for your word, because when we know when we're, dis- when we're sticking straight to your word, we are saying the very words that describe who you are. So Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation of our great one God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. We praise you for your work in our lives. We praise you for your love, your grace, and your fellowship. It is amazing. And it moves our hearts to love you, O God. I pray in Jesus' name. Trust that was a musical version of what's really on your heart, what really is in your heart, what you really believe. But I would really hate to leave this morning and with the possibility that there's someone here this morning who is for the first time coming to recognize who God really is and what he has done and how he loves us and what Christ has really done and that you can have a relationship with God and be in the family of God. So if, uh, if God has spoken to your heart this morning and you say, I, you know, I don't know that I'm in the family of God. I've never heard of that before. I'm not sure that I understand that. Right after the service, while everybody else is going that way, you please come this way. Our pastoral team will be here and we'd love to talk to you and make certain that no one leaves here this morning who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior and can call God your Father and experience the indwelling power and presence of God in your life through the Holy Spirit. That's the essence of this message to you this morning. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for the truth, how you have shared with us. In our finite minds, Lord, we, we, we seek to grasp all we can of this because it means so much to us. But we do know this, that you love us. And we do know that Jesus died for us. And we do know that we can have a relationship with God through faith in Christ. And we do know that we can have the Holy Spirit living in our lives. And we have him to uh, enable us to live out the Christian life. So Lord, for all of these things, we praise you today. In your glorious name, amen.